Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara Ong Whaley. And I am Katerina Perez-Cino. I'm a politics third year student at UVA, currently interning with the Center for Politics this spring. As someone who is originally from Venezuela, I am eager to speak with Mr. Valdez about the state of democracy in Latin America. In this episode, we speak with His Excellency Juan Gabriel Valdez, who was most recently sworn in as ambassador to the United States in spring 2022. He also previously served as ambassador to the United States from 2014 to 2018. In addition to being ambassador to the United States, he has served as Chile's ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations and Minister of Foreign Affairs, among other positions. He was a visiting professor at Columbia University in New York, Sorbonne in Paris, and served as Director of Institutional and Strategic Affairs at the University of Chile in Santiago. Enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. As someone who has lived under the authoritarian regime of General Augusto Pinochet, I wonder if you can begin by sharing what you believe are the most pressing issues facing democracy in Latin America and around the world today and how we can best work together to deepen democracy. Well, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. There is a challenge to democracy as uh, I have not seen more in my life, I believe, because the challenge is not coming from, as in the past, from um, the simply the weakening of institutions and the internal conflict. It's becoming an ideology that is going around the world and it's being expressed by parties in Europe, in Latin America and in other places in which frustration with globalization, the idea that there is marginalization of certain sectors, the idea that uh, democracy, representative democracy, which is in fact the only democracy that exists, is, is not valid because social media can replace uh, members of Congress and therefore people tend to think that uh, their participation is assured by the social media. This is creating an ideology in which democracy seems to be useless and therefore it has to be replaced by somebody and uh, this somebody is the authoritarian leader which has the direct relationship with the masses and therefore addresses the masses and solves the problems of the masses this is becoming serious in countries like hungary in countries in europe putin in a way represents that in russia um, conservatism which is added to these feelings uh, it has taken some importance, uh, more than some importance in the United States, and it's been represented in Chile and in Latin America uh, much more than the old communist authoritarianism that uh, is still happening in some parts of Latin America, but is destined, destined to fail because it doesn't really have support from the masses. Therefore, from my point of view, there are threat, threat, threats coming from the left and from the right. But it is true that in our perspective, at least in Latin America, the, the most important threat is coming from the right. On that note, what is the importance of accountability for actions taken by authoritarian leaders and regimes? 
Accountability is, is, is in the essence of democracy, and I believe that the account, accountability is, is expressed in the capacity of institutions to uh, respond to uh, power uh, and to channel power towards the citizens. And therefore, the importance of maintaining institutions which are credible and are decent and work according to the state uh, of law, un estado de derecho, we say in Spanish. Um, the strength of institutions is, is what, what protects us from authoritarianism. And uh, from a political point of view, I believe that internal division, uh, debates which seem to be political but are not, are simply competitions of power between local leaders or political leaders. Uh, these kind of distractions that are produced by uh, particularly social media um, are uh, weaken institutions and tend to, uh, tend to divert the observation and the capacity of people to respond to authoritarianism. Therefore, uh, I believe that uh, the idea of creating big pacts agreements around certain essential issues to defend democracy is very important. In Chile, we are trying to do that vis-a-vis -vis the question of internal security, which is becoming a very serious threat to institutions and to the, particularly to the, the, the capacity of the people to, uh, to, to believe in democracy, to believe that it, it is a democratic system that can save them from the threat of crime, uh, drugs, and uh, brutality coming from gangs. I think that this is extremely important. If not, they would support an authoritarian government, and it would be the complete failure of our democracy. Ambassador Valdez, in Chile, a special assembly spent more than two years writing a new constitution to replace the current one that dates back to the country's military dictatorship. The proposed constitution, which some had called the world's most progressive, would have put a focus on social issues and gender parity, it would have enshrined rights for the indigenous population, and it would have addressed climate change. In September 2022, Chilean voters rejected the proposal, and on January 11th of this year, Chile's Congress passed a bill that starts a new process to replace the country's Pinochet-era constitution. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the process and what you will expect to happen moving forward. Well, this uh, very important questions, question uh, forces me to go a bit behind and try to explain what happened in Chile during the last years before this constitutional convention was elected and uh, produced this new constitution that was rejected, as you have just related. Um, I think that... Uh, after the, the end of the dictatorship began a very fruitful and positive road of uh, growing and at the same time being able to distribute wealth, uh, strengthening institutions and at the same time transforming institutions. It was not an easy road because we had, uh, as has always happened in Hispanic countries, uh, the former dictatorship had organized the system in a way in which no changes could be made. Therefore, you had to disarm the whole apparatus that had been 
constructed by the Pinochet dictatorship. The same thing happened in Spain after Franco. Uh, and you had to create the conditions in order to reestablish democracy. That means that the rule of, of the majority. This is the first question. The second question is that uh, Chile developed an economic system in which private sector and private development and the participation of private sector was central and um, the economy was linked to the process of globalization through an enormous amount of uh, uh, trade agreements. Among them, one with the United States and another with China, to mention the two more important, most important. Uh, also to mention the one with the European Union, etc. Therefore, Chile uh, inserted itself in globalization, and this meant a series of changes inside the country. What happened as a result was that there was an enormous growth of the economy. The state was able to channel aid to the poorer sectors of society, but there was a middle class, which was not a rich middle class. It was more, much more a poor middle class that uh, felt that they didn't participate. And this group saw development, saw progress, saw in some cases the possibility of buying cars, having TV sets, uh, participating in the wealth of the country, but feeling that they had no future at the same time. This group of people produced generalized uh, in, the, in the society a malaise, a feeling that the rich were too rich and were profiting from the situation and that uh, there was no possibility of change. Uh, the last comment of Michel Bachelet uh, with the socialist and Christian democratic uh, coalition tried to change this situation, attempted to change this situation. The reaction of the private sector and the reaction of the conservative sectors was very, very drastic against the government. Uh, it was proclaimed a failure when it was not. And the proposal she made, particularly the idea of creating a new constitution, was simply discarded. And as people is voting not for in, in, in an ideological sense, but it's mostly voting for the alternative, rejecting what is in place and voting for the alternative. The center-right was elected once again after Michel Bachelet. President Piñera took power and he proclaimed the idea of modernizing even more the country and uh, uh, projecting what he called an island in the middle of Latin America. We are an oasis in the middle of Latin America, he said. Unfortunately, he said that phrase 10 days before there was the social explosion, the biggest social explosion Chile has seen since the uh, 1930s. Uh, there was violence in the center of the town. I was a professor of the University of Chile at the time, and I was in the center, in the, mi the mid-center of the city. And I saw that I had to stay all night at the university because I couldn't get out. Two days later, one million people came to the center of Santiago. I'm not exaggerating, one million people. Mm -hmm. And three days later, there was a march of women, which also brought one million women in the streets. Why? Because they were protesting against abuse, what they called abuse and indignity. And this indignity had to do with pensions, with lack of good education, with abuse from the... Uh, 
health services, with abuse from the pension system, what they saw as a society that was growing profoundly unjust. This is the basis of the new constitution. On this basis, the only solution, the only uh, institutional solution for it, because there was a moment in which we were concerned that this mass of people in the street might simply overthrow the institutions that were in power in Chile. Therefore, the channeling, the institutional channeling, channeling of the process was through an agreement from the left to the right to write a new constitution, which was, which would incorporate certain rights that were being demanded by Chilean society. And this is how we came to uh, gender parity. That we came to um, um, indigenous participation, and we came to elect. Um, a convention that was completely different to the political parties and to those who had participated in this process of decision-making in the past. People didn't want to have the politicians writing the constitution at that time, at that time. And I underlined that at that time. What happened later was that we elected a convention that was divided by a uh, interest groups. There was a group of the, the ecologists or the defenders of nature. There was a group of uh, women's rights. There was a group of conservatives that wanted to keep the market working uh, without intervention. There was the group, and therefore, instead of representing or thinking the constitution as a constitution that would represent the whole of society, what we had was a complete division inside the convention. And, and in this sense, I will say something which is very, very uh, debatable. Do you say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, polemic. Uh, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm talking as a Chilean citizen on these matters. I'm talking about history now. Um, the means of communication, what they showed and what they wanted to show was division inside the convention, conflict inside the convention, disorder, chaos. Uh, the convention produced a product which was not read by the people in the, the country. It, the voted more about the behavior of the convention than about the text. The text had serious problems, it is true. It was too long. It included things that were absolutely out of what had been Chilean tradition and was reflecting Chilean character and Chilean institutions, like, for instance, the idea of a multinational, a a plurinational country. Chile has never been a plurinational country. It's a country in which the Chileans have been uh, have felt a common identity since the beginning of the 19th century, and the indigenous people have to participate. But you cannot say that Chile, as Guatemala or 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 Bolivia, is a plurinational country because, uh, with the exception of the Mapuches, about which we can talk later if you want, there are no other. Particularly, there are no nine. Uh, national identities in the country, as the constitution pretended. Political climates change in a way with, in which we cannot, uh, we cannot, we cannot prevent uh, the change in climate uh, after the the, 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 the process uh, 
the election of President Boric, and what happened later, particularly in, in, in the way in which the, the conservative sectors managed the agenda, uh, uh, centered excessively, probably, on the question of a crime and order inside the society, led people to make also a vote, not on the Constitution, but a vote on the conditions in which they were living under the new government which was, were conditions extremely difficult because the pandemic was presenting its uh, worse consequences. The war in U Ukraine had created a problem of inflation which was not, 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 not previously perceived. Uh, and, and the new group, the, the, the new group of young leaders was just installing themselves into the institutions. Therefore, there was a big rejection, and it was, of course, a very difficult moment for the government. It is a very difficult moment for Chile. Yet, uh, what, what, what this, did this process establish? The first thing it established is that it is impossible for Chileans to continue to live with a constitution that was written during the Pinochet period. Therefore, even the conservative sectors, after this victory for them, rejecting their previous text, had to agree that we had to re-begin begin once again a process of building a constitution. The second thing is that gender parity was there to stay. There was no possibility of writing a constitution with a majority of men and leaving women aside. The third thing is what it, 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 that was established was that the, 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 the environmental problem, that earthwarming, that the conditions in which Chile was in the new situation of, of, of ecological situation had to be presented in the constitution, had to be present in the constitution, and Chile had to be uh, a leader in the transformation of uh, its, its energy grid and its uh, process of, of uh, defense, defense of, the, of, of, of the environment. The fourth thing that was established was that indigenous population needed a, a representation um, and that the regions had to be present in Chile because Santiago was absolutely a monster in comparison to what the provinces and the regions represent. Therefore, even if there was a change in terms that now we have a process that has been accorded by political parties, which we can count with experts, on constitutional law that will begin working on a, on a text that will later on will be um, uh, approved by, uh, elect, by, by elected members of a convention, not, 100, not 100 like last time, but 50 this time, and that we will vote for these people in May and we will have a new constitution by the end of the year. Uh, it is not the same procedure, but it is a procedure in which, as I said, the old constitution, or if you want, the previous process had an enormous impact. We will have a constitution, a new constitution by the end of this year. You mentioned the social upheaval. How is the government working to address the underlying socioeconomic and political inequalities that undergird the movement, as well as the challenges that have come from globalization? Well, the government, the present government of uh, President Gabriel Boric, is centered on three uh, questions that are essential for, for the population. There are two of them come from the program, but the president has been very clear in saying that apart from these two 
he has to listen to the people and see the problems that affect the people right now. Therefore, the most important challenge today in Chile is to control crime and to be able to have a police uh, that is capable of responding to crime and at the same time respecting human rights. Uh, that, that is the first question, and I think this is extremely important, and I believe that, and I believe that given my age and experience, that I know that for young people who come from the left to confront the security problem is a very difficult thing. They were used to defend uh, people against the police instead of working with the police in order to confront criminals. Now, the second thing is the health system and the pension system. The health system is intolerable. Uh, you have three uh, million people in the country who have access to private uh, health, uh, which is extraordinarily good, extraordinarily good, which is impossibly expensive. But uh, the rest of the country have, has only access to uh, public public services that are extremely weak and need to be reorganized. And therefore, I think that people see as a, as a very, very important uh, priority uh, the efforts that the government is promoting to change the system, which is not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do at all. Uh, the, the famous ISAPRES, which are the organizations that take care of those, these three million people who have access to private uh, health, um, uh, have, uh, um, cannot, cannot simply be, be, cannot, cannot simply disappear. You have to make a, a process to organize a process which is, which is uh, uh, progressive and uh, is capable of accommodating private health with public health in a way in which you respect rights of people to choose, but at the same time you strengthen the, the, cap the capacity of public hospitals to uh, give some sort of um, support to, to, to patients. I have had during the last two or three months a series of discussions with uh, representatives of ISAPRES because some of them are owned by American uh, business uh, and uh, they always tell me there is no there is no perfect health system in the world. Therefore, you can try different options. The problem is that the options have to consider the, 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 consider the interests and the security of all people involved. And I think the government is taking care of that. The same happens with the pensions. The pensions in Chile are private, as you know, and uh, were declared private during the period of Pinochet. And the, the initial promise was that people would retire, uh, it makes one laugh when one remembers that, that people would retire gaining, uh, with the same salary as they had when they were retiring, which, which is, a, is a type of joke today, particularly for poor people who have frankly, no access to pensions, or pensions are completely irrelevant. Then there is a need for a change. There is a law in Congress, and uh, this is being discussed and it will be approved. Of course, we don't want to, we know we, we are not going to get everything we wanted, and th this is a process of negotiation. The government has a minority in Congress, therefore it has to negotiate with different 
parties, too many parties, I think. But anyway, uh, this is a situation. I think that this is a way in which we are trying to confront the problem of inequality and uh, the problems that are produced by the international economy and the Chilean economy. Ambassador Valdez, you spent two years as head of the United Nations peacekeeping mission to Haiti. Haitian migrants have taken refuge in Chile in recent years, and there are about 150,000 Haitian refugees in in your country. Uh, In January, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, insisted on the deployment of an international specialized armed force to Haiti and called on governments to consider halting deportations as the country's situation spirals. Secretary General Guterres also noted gang-related violence and human rights violations have reached critical levels. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the responsibility of the United Nations and other countries in the region are to redress the situation in Haiti. And what do you see as a path forward for the country in terms of restoring peace, stability, and democratic governance? Yes, I have been involved for a long time in, in, with Haiti, and I continue to be involved because I continue to talk to my friends in, 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 in the country and to people outside the country, even the American government and other governments in Latin America. Um, the situation in Haiti is much worse than when I arrived there in 2002, three, I'm sorry. Um, uh, the situation is much worse in particular because at the time in which I was there, there was a possibility for a political agreement among the elites. And today you don't see any attempt to have a political agreement among the elites. Therefore, when the government of the United States, the government of Canada, or the government of or the United Nations, or the Secretary General of the OAS, calls for a military force and think uh, that the problem can be solved uh, by military means, I do not agree with it. I was in charge of a force of... Uh, 11,000 people armed by the UN um, and under Chapter 7, that meant of the Charter, that meant that they had the, 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 the right to repel and to shoot. And I can say that the solution was not the military or the, the, the presence of the military, except the presence of the military as a, 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 in, in their capacity to dissuade any attempt to confront the authorities and destroy the institutional progress of the country. In that sense, they can be important. Now, why do, why do I say this? I say this because the gangs, When what happens with the gangs is that as soon as they realize that there will be an international force coming to the country, they will disappear. They will, they will, they will hide their weapons and they will disappear. Disparaître uh, dans la nature, they say. Then uh, they, they simply do not continue to act. This happened when we were there, and uh, therefore my my first observation is that what governments outside the country should do is to force. To, to push 
for a political change in the present situation in which there is a prime minister that has no legitimacy, that has no possibilities of governing, that is not calling for a national government and is not negotiating with the people who really have the possibility of constructing a government towards an election. I've heard many times the argument against what I'm saying, saying, well, who cares about elections in Haiti? I mean, only, I mean, the people who are in the streets don't care about who is governing, governing the country. This is not true. The problem is that the elites consider that their only possibility of, survi of, of survival and their only possibility of power is in the control of government. Therefore, the control of government and politics become essential. Politics is the only game in town in Haiti. Therefore, if you don't solve the political problem at the same time than solving the security problem, or if you don't have legitimacy enough among the elites in order to confront the gangs, what you have is a reaction of the elites against the international community. And this is what we don't want. Therefore, my point is, um, the situation is tragic because the United States will have to face an enormous amount of migrants coming from Haiti if this situation is not solved. And the level of suffering and the level of humiliations of women, children, and men in Haiti is horrible. The gangs have no, uh, have no respect for anything. And uh, they, they have to be confronted by, by, by people who can confront them. But they will not be won or they will not be dissolved if there is not an internal political power that gives some legitimacy to international intervention. Uh, this, is, this is what I think about Haiti at present. I would love to learn more about Venezuelan migrants and the state of the 500,000 Venezuelan refugees in Chile. What do you believe should be done for refugees specifically, but more broadly to address the situation in Venezuela? First of all, I think you have to confront reality. And you cannot continue to uh, allow dreams and uh, to, 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 in, to introduce themselves into your decisions. Um, let me say first about the negotiations. I believe that there is a possibility of a negotiation between the Maduro government and the opposition in Mexico. Uh, I think that this is an important process and uh, the Chilean government is supporting that process uh, and uh, we will continue to support it. I am personally going to Mexico in two weeks because I'm going to participate in a seminar organized by the United Nations and the Norwegian government on mediation. And uh, of course, this topic will come and I'm extremely interested in the way in which we could help. At the same time that I say that, that a mediation or a process of negotiation cannot mean, does not mean that we forget about the question of human rights. Human rights is absolutely essential. And the question is that the, 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 the regime in Venezuela transformed itself into a dictatorship a long time ago. And we have said that publicly, and the president has been very clear in his criticisms to the present situation in Venezuela. But it is a fact that President Maduro is the president of Venezuela. And therefore, we have diplomatic relations, not at the level of ambassadors now, but we will have at the level of ambassadors. And we would like to establish some sort of dialogue with that government. 
I, I think that uh, the solution comes from creating a space that will allow them to solve the problem. Let me, I, I don't want, and I have never believed that Chile is the model, but we Chileans went through a situation in which we considered our counterparts as participants in the, in the worst violation of human rights in our history. But we had to negotiate and we had to uh, find a, a, a situation in which their own security was assured and our own security was assured and our own majorities were recognized in electoral terms. This is what we would like to see. And of course, uh, I know it's very difficult. Now, with respect to the question of migration, uh, we have received an enormous amount of professionals and people who are extremely well-formed from Venezuela. Uh, unfortunately, some of them are driving taxis. Uh, we, are, we have also received an amount of people who come from the gangs in Venezuela. And this is, has increased the uh, feeling, the sensation, that Santiago in particular is a very insecure city and that we are in trouble besides our own security. Um, this is not only the case of Venezuelans. Colombians have come to Chile and unfortunately they have participated in the, in the organization of a network of crime on the cities, in the cities, which is extremely, con we are very concerned about that. Uh, I, the, best, uh, the best way to explain this is that even if Chile had in the past crime, of course it had, the level of violence of these crimes has increased brutally since the arrival of immigrants. Therefore, people tend to, 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 to consider them responsible for these crimes. And at the same time, the possibility of xenophobia is beginning to happen in Chile, and we are very concerned about that. I think that we ought to discuss much more seriously with the governments of Peru and Bolivia in order to coordinate ourselves and um, have some sort of control of the people who are coming through the north of Chile to the, to, to the rest of the country. But um, a humanitarian perspective of what is going on is absolutely necessary because the level of suffering of people who walk for days and 15 days or take buses and have to, with children, etc., and come at three in the morning is extremely impressive. I was talking yesterday to, to, the, to the new military attaché of the embassy in Washington uh, from Chile, and, uh, and the, he was telling me that he was in charge of the northern part of the country, and that it breaked his heart to see people coming at three in the morning with families without a cent, and were, 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 were stopped before the border with Bol and between Bolivia and Chile, and were told that if they paid 50,000 pesos, they could be moved to Iquique, which, was, which is a fraud because Iquique, they can walk there. They don't know, however, because they are just arriving to the country at three in the morning. Then it is a tragedy, and I think that this tragedy is going to, unfortunately, to increase, given particularly the situation of earth warming uh, and uh, the impact that uh, we have not uh, we have not yet uh, we have not yet examined seriously what it means for migration the impact of the changes in the environment mm -hmm. and the of earth warming.
That would be an enormous movement of migrants coming from countries in which the possibility of continue a normal life becomes impossible. Juan Gabriel Valdez, ambassador to the United States from Chile. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. We really appreciate your time and expertise. As as we've been in conversation, you've really described a haunting number of socioeconomic and political challenges and issues facing Chile, Latin America, and countries around the world. I wonder if you can conclude by sharing whether there's anything that gives you hope for the future. Yes, I think that uh, I believe that uh, new generations um, are, are, are democratic. Uh, the point is that we need to understand how we can change the present democratic systems in order to make them more representative and closer to the way of life, the, tra- the enormous cultural transformation that is uh, occurring today in the world and is affecting the new generations. I can understand perfectly well that somebody who is 21, 25 years old does not feel attracted by the members of Congress and by and by the life, the political life, and the type of description that uh, means of communication make of what it means to become a politician, what it takes to win an election, etc., etc. In these conditions, of course, democracy will not be able to compete with authoritarian theories, uh, particularly if they become technocratic and they become linked to 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 social media. Uh, therefore, we have to make an effort not to be conform, not to conform ourselves to what we have reached up to, until now in terms of the democratic development, but to create the possibilities of people to participate in different ways. And I think this is this is a challenge in which we look very much at the United States. This is another thing. Latin America is always seen uh, or has always thought. Uh, that the United States is not the place where new ideas are there, because Latin America has always been, has, has, has developed historically a sort of resentment towards the United States. Let me say that one of the most attractive thing of the things of the Chilean government at present is that the Chilean government will, this, this generation of people who are in Chile, might think, might be against uh, imperialism. If, if the United States or any other country decides to invade another country or decides to go uh, through against the, 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 the charter of the United Nations, etc., etc., we would react. But this is the first left-wing group of young people who do not see the United States as their enemy. On the contrary, they, they think that they don't think that to be leftist, you have to be anti-American. I think this is extremely important. And I believe that President Biden or, or Secretary Blinken realized that when they spoke to the leaders of the Chilean government. We share the same values in terms of human rights, in terms of democracy, in terms of the, or in investments. We want American investments. We understand that the countries cannot develop if there is not a process of cooperation between them. And we, 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 we believe that uh, these values can allow us to make very good things together for the future.
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Please support us by rating and subscribing to Politics is Everything wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.